All right, so we're going to go ahead and begin. We are in Matthew chapter 15, and we are picking up in verse 29. We'll just read the rest of this chapter, and then we'll move into chapter 16 tonight. So there's not a whole lot to say on these last uh, couple of sections here. So we'll just read those together, make a few comments on these, and then we'll move into chapter 16 tonight. Okay? So Matthew chapter 15, and we'll pick up in verse 29. It says, Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them, and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large basketfuls. And those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be together tonight, Lord, uh, to gather here uh, and to open your word. And we pray, Father, that tonight you would uh, instruct us and teach us, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law, Lord, that we might uh, understand what is your will, Lord, how it is that we should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of our sins, and Lord, that you would establish us to live a godly life. So, Lord, teach us tonight uh, from your word, and we pray that you bless our time together. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here, uh, this, uh, the end of this chapter is recounting more of the things that Jesus did, more of the miracles of Christ. 29 to 31 give kind of just a summary statement of these kinds of miracles. And we know from the Gospel of John uh, that there the Apostle John says, that if everything Jesus did was recorded, there's not even enough books in the world to contain all the things that he did and all the things that he said. That what we have in the gospel is a sufficient record, but it's not an exhaustive record of all the things that Jesus said and all the things that he did. And there are places where you have these kind of summaries where he's healing all of these people, right? Where there are many, many miracles taking place during this one occasion or at this one time. And this was true of the ministry of Christ, that there were many true miracles happening, signs from God that testified that he indeed was the Christ, the son of the living God, sufficient evidence for people to believe and know that he was the Christ and that they should look for no one else but put their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. Now that will become important because in chapter 16, the Pharisees and scribes are coming to him asking for a sign, as if there's not enough evidence of these things. And he's doing all of this openly, in the broad daylight. He's not hiding in secret corners. He's not doing it in obscure places. Though this is a desolate place, there are many people there, thousands and thousands of people. So there are plenty of witnesses to all the things that Jesus is saying and all the things that he is doing so that there is sufficient evidence for one to have confidence in who he is and that he is the one who is indeed the savior of the world. The only thing lacking is the heart, the heart of the people. It's their own sin that keeps them from believing in Christ. And we as well, though we were not there visibly and physically with Christ, and we did not witness these things with our own eyes, we have sufficient evidence because we have the testimony of the holy apostles. And they have recorded for us by the spirit of God these events that took place in the life of Christ. And we know that they are telling the truth, that it's impossible for them to lie because they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And what they have given to us is the infallible, inerrant, perfect word of God without any error. And we can have confidence that all of these things took place 
And if Jesus is able to do this, these physical healings are for the purpose of drawing our minds to greater spiritual realities, right? Because it is not the case that all of us are lame, crippled, blind, mute. It's rare to find someone that is afflicted with that kind of condition. It's not generally true. Most people, that is not the case with them. Generally speaking, people have a healthy body, and it is an exception that someone is afflicted with one of these diseases. However, the disease of sin is universal. It is universal to all men. All men are afflicted with sin. So while all men may not be lame, crippled, blind, mute, all men are that spiritually speaking. And these miracles that Jesus is doing this visibly and physically is evidence that he can also forgive us of our sins, that he is the one that can give us eternal life from the dead. And that's why he's doing these things to attest to the people that they should believe his words. And they're used to uh, uh, buttress and bolster his teaching ministry, his teaching ministry, which was the primary aspect of the ministry of Christ. He did the miracles, but the miracles were there to support the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. So here in verses 29 to 31, you have a plethora of these miracles that are taking place. That he's there in this area around the Sea of Galilee. He's up on the mountain. He's there in a large crowd, a crowd that we find out in the next section is over 4,000 people. 4,000 men, not counting women and children. So a very large crowd of people that come to him and they're bringing to him their loved ones, those that they know and care about, who are afflicted with these kinds of diseases. They're laying them at his feet and then he's healing them, healing them. And also, he's not doing it for money. He's not doing it for money and he's not doing it for fame, fame and fortune, right? Which is contrary to the so-called modern day healers that go out and promote themselves today. But they do it for fame and fortune. And some of them are the most wealthy uh, scam artists in America today, in religion, uh, in religious circles in America. You have certain so-called healers who are not true healers. They're not truly healing people, but they claim to do those things. And then they scam money out of people. And some of them do to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars that they have made off of these kinds of ministries. Jesus isn't doing that at all. He's doing all of this for free, out of goodwill, out of love for his fellow men. Why won't these men do it out of love? Yeah. Why won't they go to hospitals and go and heal the people that are afflicted there? Why will they only do it when it's a show and when they can control it, if they can truly do these things? Even some of them have claimed to raise people from the dead. Did you know that? That there are some modern-day so-called healers who have claimed to have raised people from the dead. But where are these people? Where's the evidence of it? We want to see it. It's always done in these secret ways where no one is a witness. But that's not the case with Christ. He's doing his openly, and there's plenty of witnesses, and he's not doing it for money. He's doing it out of love for other people and to preach the gospel, the true gospel. That's another difference as well. These so-called healers today, they don't preach the Bible. They don't preach the Bible at all. They are preaching themselves and making a lot of money, but they will get their reward in the end. 31, so the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So the people are recognizing rightly that this is a result of the work of God, of the power of God. This is why they're glorifying the God of Israel. They're not glorifying a false God or a different God, but they are glorifying the true God of Israel. Now, some we know this is superficial or it's temporary because not all these people will stay with him, but certainly there would have been among them those who would become true believers and who would truly worship and glorify God for the things that they were seeing being done by the Christ. Then verse 32, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people, because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. Here, Jesus has compassion for the people. Right? They've been with him for three days. That they've been there and they're in this desolate place. And the focus of what's been taking place is ministry. The preaching of the word and the healing of these people. And it's been there for three days and they've had nothing to eat. 
And now Jesus is about to send them away. He's going to dismiss them. They're going to disperse and go back to their hometowns. And if you go this long without substantial food, right, without a good meal, then he's fearful that they might faint on the way, that they're going to become weary. They don't have their strength. They don't have their stamina and they might faint on the way. And he has compassion for them. So he's doing it because of his love and his care for them. He's not a cold-hearted man. He's not a stoic man. He's a tender person, one who has love and compassion for those who are in this distress situation. And this is a legitimate need. This isn't some false need. This isn't because of negligence or because of laziness. The reason they're in this situation is because they've been with him for three days. They've been listening to him teach. They've stayed there. They remained this time. And so they have this legitimate need. And so Jesus is coming to meet this need. Now, this also, we should point out, is the opposite of much modern day ministry that is happening today. And many times people will use these examples to justify, um, you know, having pizza parties and hot dogs and all the types of things that we need to do to get people to come to church. Right? Because people won't come for the Bible, but they will come if you offer them food. Right? If you offer them food and games, then they will show up in droves. So the justification for doing this kind of ministry, which I call the bait and switch, you know, the bait and switch, you bait them in with the food, and then you get them here, and then you throw in a little Jesus on the side, okay? And you hope that it sticks. So that's the way that much ministry is going on, especially with young people. Because young people love to eat. That's all they want to do. Although, old people like to eat as well. Everyone wants to eat. And it really, it works. It's a universal, effective method of drawing a crowd. Just offer them food and they will come. And they will use these kinds of passages to justify what Jesus fed the people. He did that. And therefore, it's okay for us to use food as a bait or a gimmick or something to put out before the people to get them to come to church in order to hear the study of the Bible. And that that's good and an acceptable means to do so. But we would note here that Jesus did not promise them food at the beginning. Right. He wasn't using food as the gimmick to get them to come to this place. They're coming anyway. They're coming to see him, to hear him teach for the healing ministry that is going on. There's no talk or promise of food. Jesus does this spontaneously, right? In the sense that he's not announced it beforehand that, hey, if you come out to this meeting, we're going to have a meeting. And if you stay with me for three days, then I'll feed you at the end of it. Though, if that was the condition, most of the people wouldn't come anyway, right? right? They won't stay hooked up for 10 minutes, right? But if you give them food, maybe they will. But three days, there's no way that people would come even today for uh, three days in order to get a hot dog or a couple of pieces of pizza. Okay, so anyway, the point being, this is not what Jesus is doing. He's not using food. He's not dangling healing in front of people in order to draw a big crowd. He's doing true legitimate ministry. And then the, what is prompting him to feed the people is his care for them, his compassion, his tenderness, the fact that they have an, an urgent need, an immediate need, a desperate need, and then he is going to provide for that need and then also use it for the good of his disciples in order to teach them. Because though he's already done this once, they need to be reaffirmed in the truths from this miracle. And that will become evident in chapter 16, that they have not put these things together. They're not thinking rightly yet of the relationship between the physical and the spiritual world. So he doesn't want them to faint, and he says, we need to give them something to eat. The disciples said, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Again, as previously, the disciples, initially, they balk at this. They are questioning it. They're questioning the soundness of this uh, recommendation. Right? How can we feed such a large group of people. This would take uh, uh, quite the logistics in order to pull off some feat like this. To feed thousands and thousands of people would take much preparation, right? And of getting food, having it delivered, preparing it, doing all of these things. So how is it going to be possible in this desolate place? There's not a store here. We can't go anywhere in order to buy the things that we need to feed this crowd. So how would we be able to do so? Now, again, we know in the previous chapters 
that Jesus has already done this once. He's already done this miracle. You would expect, of course, the first time for them to be puzzled, confused, to be doubting and to wonder what is he talking about. But having just done this once, you would think that they would have more confidence in what Christ is going to do. And yet here we see that they had their doubts, they had their weaknesses, and they're still growing and overcoming those things. And ultimately they will, but this is the way it is many times. Many times in the Christian life, it takes us once or twice or three times or four times before something sinks in and we learn the implications and we begin to have full confidence in the way that we're acting and behaving according to what we know to be true about God. Right? That's the issue. We know what is true about God. We know what the Bible says, but that manifesting and burying itself out in our experiences, in our daily life, in the way that we're responding to this situation and that situation, that is where our faith is tested. Do we really believe those things? And this is the case here. They know these things to be true. They know what Jesus has done. They know that he is the Son of God. They believe all those things. They've seen all of these miracles yet they still need to overcome the flesh and overcome their own weaknesses and their doubts. And they ultimately will. So Jesus says, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, Seven large basket full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So here, as he did the last time, he took this meager meal, this meager amount of food, right? Only uh, seven loaves and a few small fish. And then he multiplied it. He blessed it. He thanked God for it. And then in this miracle, he began to distribute it. And it just continued to increase and increase and increase so that they were able to feed 4,000 men besides women and children and then also have seven large baskets left over to pick up, right? Seven large corresponding to the seven loaves. The seven loaves became seven baskets after everyone ate and was satisfied. So Jesus provided for them and met this great need. Now, just to uh, show back to 14, 14, 15 to 21, that this is indeed a different miracle, right? A different miracle, separate and distinct from the feeding of the 5,000. So you'll just see here that there are many distinctions that are different between the one and the other. 14, verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said, we have here only five loaves and two fish. So in chapter 15, they have seven loaves. Here they only have five loaves. And the other one, it says a few fish. And there they have two fish. And then also he, after he uh, does the miracle, and then in verse 20, they picked up 12 full baskets in distinction to seven baskets in chapter Uh, 15, and then also there were 5,000 men, not 4,000. So these are two distinct miracles that happen on two separate occasions, okay? And then Jesus will also affirm this in chapter 16 when he addresses the disciples and their being concerned about bread, about bread, okay? All right, on to chapter 16. It says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the sign of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah And he left them and went away. Here, the Pharisees and Sadducees come up and they're testing Jesus, testing him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. This testing is not a good testing, right? There are times where it says that we should put the Lord to the test, right? To taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Taste and see. 
right? Put God to the test and see, as it says in Malachi chapter 3, that when we give faithfully, if he will not open the stores of heaven and pour down a blessing upon us. In that way, it's good to test God when we're being faithful to him, when we're being obedient to him, and we're seeing God prove his promises, his character, affirm those things that we know to be true, but we're acting in faith and we're acting in obedience to God. So that kind of testing is good and right and proper, and it's not coming from unbelief and of evil suspicion. But this is an evil testing, a sinful testing, because they're doing this out of unbelief. They have no desire to believe in Christ. They're not serious people who are inquisitive, who are trying to figure it out, who are sincere in what they're doing, and they really want to know the truth and they want to understand the truth. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're trying to figure things out. They've already made up their mind. They don't believe in him. They believe that he is a devil. They believe he has a demon. They've said horrible, nasty things about him. They have no desire to believe in him, to trust in him, to follow him, to be obedient to him in any way, shape, or form. And yet they continue to come up and to test him and to do these kinds of things in order to prove and manifest their own sin and their unbelief. So they come up and they're testing him in this evil, sinful way. And they want him to show them a sign from heaven. Show us a sign from heaven, right? That proves that you are who you say you are, right? This is what they want. Now, this all assumes that Jesus has not given sufficient evidence, that it's still ambiguous and it's unclear, and he's not speaking forthrightly and clearly. Of course, he's telling them who he is and giving to them ample proof, many examples, many illustrations to show that he is indeed the son of God. But they refuse to believe. And what sign can he perform? What miracle can he perform that they're going to believe in him? There's nothing that he can do that is going to satisfy their sin, their unbelief, because this is being prompted by an evil, unbelieving heart. So there's nothing that Jesus can say or do. He's always going to lose with these people because they're losers. These people are losers, and he will always lose with them, no matter what he says and no matter what he does. And this is the way that people behave. Remember in John chapter 3, John chapter 3, And verse 1, John 3, verse 1, says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there, they know Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He's coming to Jesus, and he's saying this on behalf of the other rulers, on behalf of the other Pharisees. They're talking about these things, so he's the one that comes representing them, and he says, we know that these things are true. We know that you have come from God. It's impossible for someone to do what you're doing unless God is with him, right? Unless God is with him. And yet, even though all of this is open and evident to them, they still refuse to believe, to believe and to trust in him. And they keep asking for more signs, more signs, more evidence in order to justify their own wicked unbelief, right? That's what they're doing here. They're justifying their own sin and they're trying to put it on Christ, trying to blame him a lack of signs for their unbelief and their not knowing what to do as if things are hidden and dark and confusing. Well, what does Jesus do? He does not accommodate their sin. He doesn't give them what they want. He actually confronts them and shows how foolish they are, how foolish these people are. He replied, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the time? Here, he's pointing out to them that they do have the ability to look at things, observe things, even look at signs in the sky and make accurate conclusions concerning what they see. 
they're able to do this in relationship to the physical world. And they're able to make decisions and order their life in a certain way according to what they're seeing and what they're observing in the natural world, right? That's what they're doing. When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. The red in the sky is indicating to you, you've observed this over time, over the course of years, that generally speaking, when the sky is red in the evening, then the weather is fair. And then you know that it's going to be a nice evening and you are going to go out and lounge around and do whatever you do when it is a good evening. And then in the morning, when the sky is red and threatening, you know that there's a storm coming, right? We're able to see that. We look out. We see the dark clouds in the west. We see the, the you can uh, feel the, the way it is outside and you know there's going to be a storm today. There's going to be a thunderstorm, right? This is what's going to happen. And so you know what's about to take place and then you make decisions. You order your life according to the things that you see. So they are able to observe these physical signs and then make according plans, but they cannot do the same thing spiritually. Why are you able to do this physically, but you can't do it spiritually? You can do it in order to order your daily life, but you're not able to do it in order to order your eternal life, right? The life to come. Spiritual things that are more important. And this is true in many ways in this present world. Many people can make shrewd, wise, discerning decisions by observing aspects of creation. They can observe the way people behave, human behavior, politics, world events, uh, markets, whether it's the stock market, commodity markets. They're able to look and observe trends and see things that are happening, and then they can predict and make decisions based upon what they see and make a profit or do something and have some benefit that comes to them in this present world. Yet they will not take the same diligence, the same studiousness, in order to discern spiritual and eternal matters. That's the point that Jesus is making. Why are you able to do this with the physical world, but you can't do it with the spiritual world? How can you not discern who I am? How can you not understand what is taking place? the sign of the times. Don't you know that the kingdom of God has come near to you? And yet you are not able to see it. So why can you not see it? The problem isn't me. It's not a lack of evidence. The problem is you, right? It's your own unbelief. It is your wicked, unbelieving heart and your blindness that keeps you from seeing these things. That is the essential problem that we have. And it is a problem that is common to man. People are concerned with this physical world. That's all they care about. They don't care about the life to come. And they're not thinking about it. And they're not making proper decisions and planning accordingly so that when they stand before God on the day of judgment, they're not going to be cast into the lake of fire. They're not doing those things. But we have the whole Bible given to us. And what is the purpose of the Bible? Why did God give it to man? Is it not so that we can be prepared for the life to come? So that we can be prepared to stand before God. So that we can know how to be reconciled to God through the death of his son. And how to live a life that is pleasing to him. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, 38. Jesus tells them that no sign is going to be given except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. So Matthew 12, 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus tells them in 16.4 that they are an evil and adulterous generation because they're seeking for a sign. This is shows that you have an evil heart and you are adulteresses because He's speaking to Jews, to Israelites, who claim to be 
children of God. They claim to be the wife of God, right? The bride of Christ. But they're not. They are adulterous because of their unbelief, their own unbelief. And he says, no sign will be given to you. I'm not going to do a miracle for you on the spot. The only sign will be the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is resurrection. Death and resurrection. That is the sign that will be given to them. And that is because the resurrection is a universal sign. It is a universal sign for all men. For all men. And that would be according to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4. Romans 1, verse 1, says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead was a declaration by God that he is the Son of God. That he is the Son of God and God was pleased with him. Then also Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31. The Apostle Paul uses the same argument with the men of Athens. That the resurrection of Christ is a a sign for all generations and for all mankind. Acts 17.30 Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So He's furnished proof to all men, even those in Athens, Right, who were not in proximity to what took place in Jerusalem, but he's furnished proof to them by raising him from the dead. Now we might say, well, how is he furnished proof? Because they didn't see it. Well, we don't have to see it with our own eyes. We have the testimony of the apostles. And they're telling us and testifying to us that these things did indeed happen. So this is proof that he is the Son of God. So no sign except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. Then verse 5. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many basketfuls you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat, and they're going to the other side of the sea, and the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. And uh, they are talking about this, right? This is, uh, whether it's blaming uh, this one or that one or whoever was supposed to do it, for whatever reason, it's on their mind, and they're discussing among themselves the fact that they didn't bring any bread, right? No one has any bread, so what are we going to eat, right? What are we going to eat? This is what's on their mind. Well, Jesus uses this talk of bread as a time to teach them and to warn them, not about not having any bread, but about the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And he uses this play on words, using leaven, right? Leaven being an aspect of bread as a way of warning them against the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. So he tells them to watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, at this... They are wondering and discussing. Now, he said that because we forgot to bring bread. He's upset with us. He's upset because no one planned ahead accordingly and brought bread, and we don't know what we're going to eat. Right? What are we going to eat for our next meal? And so they're talking about these things. Now, again, this shows a preoccupation 
with what is physical, what is temporal, right? With what we're going to eat for our next meal. And this is often the case with people. It's always on their mind. Food is always on their mind. They're wondering from one meal to the next, what are we going to eat? And if they miss a meal, they get uptight, they get antsy, and they wonder, you know, and they're, they're, they want to know, when are we going to eat, right? What, what are we going to have for dinner? Do you know we haven't eaten yet? People think like this, right? They're preoccupied with this physical world, and they're wondering, and they're concerned because they don't have any bread. Even though Jesus had just miraculously formed bread out of this very small, meager amount by a miracle and had provided for these huge crowds. And if he can do that out of such a meager uh, uh, amount of bread to start with, and then certainly he could form bread out of a board or a rock or out of thin air if he wanted to. He can do whatever he wants. But this is, again, the problem that we often find. People are consumed with this physical world, with the needs and even the necessities of life, and they're not thinking about the spiritual world and they're not thinking about the life to come because they can't get over this present physical world. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he warns about being worried about this present life, being worried about it, being consumed with it. Again, he doesn't mean that there's not a place for us to prepare and plan to buy food and to prepare in those ways. Of course he doesn't mean that. But he means it whenever you're so occupied with these things that you're neglecting the spiritual or you're not thinking correctly about the spiritual, then you're consumed with it. And it's overwhelming you. You're preoccupied with it and it's not good for us to have this fixation and fascination with this present world, especially to be led around by our stomach. And isn't this often the case? The, the Bible even says of unbelievers that their God is their belly. belly. Their belly drives them to and fro. And we shouldn't be like this. We shouldn't be like this. Matthew six thirty one. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He says, don't worry about it. Now again, he's not saying don't plan, don't think about it, don't make proper preparations. Of course we need to do that, but worry is sin. Whenever we're worrying about these things, doubting that God is able to provide for us, then that's evil, and we shouldn't do those things in any regard but rather we should seek the kingdom of God, seek his righteousness, and then God will provide for us. Trust in God. He will meet all of our needs. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8. Verses 1 to 3. Here, this is with the children of Israel that God gave, let them have hunger for a season in order to test them to see whether they were more concerned with the physical or with the spiritual and if they would trust God. Deuteronomy 8.1 All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord." So there he gave them hunger intentionally, purposely, and then fed them with manna from heaven in order to teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by the word of God, right? That's what we need to be first and foremost on our mind, not physical bread, but the bread that comes down from heaven. Also, Jesus, in John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, rebukes the crowd, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. 
in John 6, 26 and 27, because they are coming back to him, not for the spiritual, not for the teaching, but they're coming because they want more food, more food, and they're, they're preoccupied with food. John 6, 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So there, they're coming to Christ, not because they saw the sign. They saw the sign, but their, uh, the conclusion they drew from the sign wasn't the right conclusion. Their conclusion was, hey, we'll never have to work again. This guy's going to feed us the rest of our life. It's going to be great. He'll, he'll just keep giving us food every day, and we'll never have to worry about anything. We'll always know that we're going to have a good, hot meal every day, and we're going to eat and be satisfied every day. But that wasn't the purpose of the sign. The purpose of the sign was to teach them to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, to teach them to eat his flesh and drink his blood spiritually by faith, so that they might have eternal life. And he rebukes them because they're laboring for food which perishes. That we eat and it goes into our stomach and then is expelled. And it perishes, it doesn't lead to eternal life. So they are in the wrong for that. Well, this is what the disciples are doing as well. They're preoccupied here with bread. That's what's on their mind. Where are we going to eat? We didn't bring food, we forgot to bring the bread. Now Jesus is talking to us about leaven, the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, or the Pharisees and Sadducees. Maybe they made bad bread, I don't know, uh, but for, for some reason that makes them even think more about bread. He's upset with us because we didn't bring any bread, so what are we going to do? Then verse 8, but Jesus aware of this said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? So Jesus rebukes them and says, where is your faith, right? You have faith, but it's little faith. It's little faith. It's not strong faith. It's not big faith. It's very little because you're wavering between these two things, right? You're not putting the implications together. Yes, you believe, and yes, you are true believers, but your faith isn't manifesting itself in these day-to-day -day experiences, in the things that I'm saying, in the way that you're responding in this present world. Why are you talking about bread, why would you think that I'm talking about bread when I'm talking about the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees? But the reason they think he's talking about bread is because what's on their mind? Bread. This is what they're thinking about. So, of course, that must be what Jesus is talking about. And he says, no. Why would you think I'm talking about bread? I'm not talking about that at all. You completely missed it. And the reason is because of your little faith, little faith, right? You're not focused on the right things and your faith is not manifesting itself properly in these various experiences. Then verse nine, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you picked up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large basketful you picked up? Here again, their faith is little because they have witnessed and seen with their own eyes, right? Because they were a part of this. They were the ones that Jesus put, he put the question to them, you feed the people. How are we going to feed them? How is this possible? There's no way that we can do that. We only have a, a, a few loaves and a few fish. And that's not enough sufficient to feed this large crowd of people. And then they're the ones that distributed it. And they're the ones that picked it up. So they saw more than anyone else, with their own eyes, right? In their own ears, they heard all of this, saw it all, these miracles that Jesus performed. And yet, even though they saw that, they're not remembering it. Not that they have forgot it and it's not in their mind anymore. Of course they remember what he did, but they're not remembering it in the sense that the implications of these miracles are bearing themselves out in the way that they're living before God because they're not trusting in the Lord, but their faith is little and they're worried about what they're going to eat for their next meal. Don't you remember? Don't you understand? How can you not understand these things is what Jesus is saying to them. The five loaves and the 5,000. How many baskets did you pick up? 
12 baskets from that. The seven loaves were the 4,000. How many baskets? Seven large baskets after all the people were fed and they were satisfied. So why are you worried about bread and think that I won't provide for you or that God won't provide for you when we're going to and fro doing the will of God? Right? God will provide for you. Don't be consumed with these things. Then verse 11. How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Right? The problem here is I'm not, again, talking about bread. I'm talking about their teaching, the teaching the rotten, putrid teaching, the dirty theology of the Sadducees and Pharisees. You must be on guard. You must beware of their leaven because if their leaven comes into your doctrine, what's it going to do? Well, doesn't a little leaven leaven the whole lump? And if you ingest some of their false teaching, their false ideas, whatever they're spewing out their heresies, and you accept that and inject it into your life and into your teaching then it's going to spoil you, spoil, you, uh, spoil you. It's going to ruin the whole batch and it's going to spread throughout your life and consume you until you go to hell one day. And that's why you must be very cautious and beware of their false teachings. And these were the teachers of the day. These were the pastors of the day. These were the scholars and those that everyone looked to and revered and honored and held up in high esteem as the great teachers of the day. And yet Jesus is universally, blanket statement here, saying you need to beware of these men, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of their teaching. Beware of them and watch out and be on guard. So can we, generally speaking, say... You need to beware of these people. You need to beware of this movement. You need to beware of, of what they're saying and what they're doing. Even if we haven't met with every single one of them. Yes, we can. Because that's what Jesus is doing here when he's warning them to watch out and be on guard. Because both groups, both the Pharisees and Sadducees, were rotten. They were rotten in what they were teaching and promoting among the people. Their teaching was leaven that would spread, it's gangrene, that will corrupt and spread and pollute through the whole body and the soul, and it will lead to hell. A couple of examples. First, the Pharisees. Matthew 15, 1 to 9. We read this just a couple of weeks ago. One of the things, one of the uh, false teachings, the leaven that they were promoting was the traditions of men. The traditions of men that were undermining and extinguishing the commandments of God. Matthew 15, 1. Then the, some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother... Whatever I have that would have helped you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So there they are worshiping God in vain. Their hearts are far from him. He calls them hypocrites. He says they invalidate the word of God. Is that the kind of teacher we want to sit under? No. Do we want to entrust our immortal soul to these people? No. No way. No way. We want to be far away from them. We don't want to ingest anything that they are saying. But we must be on guard of these kinds of men. Also, Matthew 23. 23. 1 to 2. We'll just read 1 to 2. But the whole chapter is dedicated to exposing and passing judgment and condemnation on the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, 
for they say things and do not do them. There they occupy, or they've seated themselves in the chair of Moses, meaning that they have the position of teacher, of the one who is opening the Bible and teaching the Bible. So insofar as what they say, what they are reading, what they're saying that corresponds to Moses, to the prophets, to the word of God, then you need to listen. You need to listen and you shouldn't reject what they're saying just because it's coming from them. If what they're saying is true, and even some false teachers will be right on a to this topic or that topic, yeah. and we shouldn't reject what they're saying on that topic if what they're saying corresponds to the Bible. However, he says, don't be like them. Don't be like them because they preach, but they don't practice. They say these things, and whatever they say that is right, well, that's good and fine, but they don't do, they don't practice what they preach. And what is a person who doesn't practice what he preach? He's a hypocrite. They are hypocrites. Do hypocrites go to heaven? No. And if you follow a hypocrite, then you'll be a hypocrite as well. You'll be just like them. Then also, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Fourteen. Sixteen fourteen. Luke 16, 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So there, they're lovers of money. Lovers of money. And they are justifying themselves in the sight of men. But God knows their heart, and their hearts are detestable in God's sight. Okay, that's the Pharisees. The Sadducees also were detestable. Acts 23. Acts chapter 23. The Sadducees would be like a modern-day liberal. Okay, a modern-day liberal. Uh, not a political liberal, though they're worthless, they're all sons of the devil, but I'm talking about a theological liberal, okay, who denies that what is miraculous, uh, they look at the Bible in this uh, way, as just, it's just a way of promoting themselves, uh, of doing uh, scholarship, writing books, writing, giving uh, lecture series on this and that, you know, in order to promote themselves and to give each other honor and, and prestige in that way. Acts 23, 8. <clears throat> says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Here, this is when the Apostle Paul uses this division between the Pharisees and Sadducees to start a uh, riot between these two groups because they're both trying to kill him. <laughs> and so he turns them against each other, rightly so, uh, because he's saying, the reason I'm on trial here is because I'm preaching resurrection. And then the Pharisees are like, well, we believe in the resurrection. And then they start arguing and bickering with the Sadducees. But here, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. How can you read the Old Testament and not believe in the resurrection? It's all over the Old Testament. Nor do they believe in angels. Nor in the spirit. So they don't believe in the spiritual aspect, the spiritual dimension. Whether of man or the spiritual world. How can you believe in God if you don't believe in spirits, in the spirit? It's impossible. So they have a completely corrupt view of God, and that's going to be manifest in their teaching, in what they're promoting, the way they're telling people to live. Everything will be corrupt and wrong. So in both ways then, scribes, or the Pharisees and Sadducees, both groups are rotten to the core. Now also we should point out in Acts 23.8, the Pharisees are better than the Sadducees because at least they believe in the resurrection. They believe in angels and they believe in the spirit. But does that mean they're trustworthy? Nope. No. Because on these other issues, they're wrong in terms of traditions, in terms of works-based salvation, what they're teaching about circumcision, right? In all these other ways, they're wrong, even though on a few things here and there, they may be right. So on the resurrection, on angels, on the spirit, they're right. But that doesn't mean that we overlook all of the ways that they are wrong. Right. Now, I say that because 
many times today, people will look for lowest common denominator, lowest common denominator. And as long as someone uh, believes that Jesus is the Christ, he was both God and man, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, he's the son of God, then they say, well, th that's all that we need to believe. And all these other issues, we can just agree to disagree. But doesn't literally everyone, I mean, not Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, but literally everyone in the majority of Christianity believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was fully God and fully man, that he lived a perfect life, he was born of a virgin, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave. Everyone believes those things. It doesn't matter what denomination that you're in. Roman Catholics believe all those things. But should we say that they're good brothers and they're good teachers because they believe all these things about Christ? When they're also at the same time promoting the worship of Mary? No. That, is that one uh, faulty doctrine enough to condemn them? Absolutely it is. Because you cannot worship Mary. You cannot pray to Mary. That's idolatry. Yep. So even if they're right on every, which they're not right on every other topic, but even if, for say, they are right on every other topic, but on this one area they're wrong, then we still have to say, that they're false teachers and we should not listen to them and we should not follow them because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? It doesn't say a little good spreads throughout the rest and overcomes all the bad, but a little rotten, a little leaven leavens the whole lump and spreads and corrupts like gangrene. And that's why we have to be on guard against these things. Again, it is very common today for people to justify the heresies, the false teachings, especially of their favorite celebrity preachers, because on some things they're right. Even on many things they may be right and may be speaking what is good and true. But if they're wrong on one or two things, well, that's enough for me to say I don't want anything to do with them, right? I don't want any false teaching. I don't want any heresies. I don't want to listen to what they're saying if they're promoting what is wrong in any area in any area, then they'll say, well, no one has perfect theology. If you ever, people will say this, no one has perfect theology. Then I want to ask that person, okay, well, tell me where you're wrong then. On what doctrine do you know that I'm wrong on this doctrine? Who goes around like that? Does anyone believe that? And, and say, I know on these three doctrines I'm wrong, and what I believe is contrary to what the Bible says. No one believes that. Everyone thinks they're right on everything. So the issue then is, what does the Bible say? Of course we're all growing. Of course we're all growing in our understanding and knowledge, but we can't use these kinds of lame excuses to justify sin and unbelief and not addressing what is right before us. Right? We have to talk about these things. Galatians 5, verse 7. Galatians 5, 7. Galatians 5, 7 says, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But if I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. So there, the leaven in Galatia was circumcision. Right? On all the other issues, at least what we know, what they were teaching corresponded to what the gospel was and what everyone was saying, but they were teaching that it was necessary for a man to be circumcised in order for him to be saved. It's teaching circumcision, Jesus plus circumcision. But is that one corruption of circumcision, is that enough to distort the gospel, corrupt the gospel, so that it is no longer the true gospel. Absolutely. To the point that the Apostle Paul says that he wants these people to be mutilated, that they would be mutilated uh, in what they are doing. Okay, so that's how serious he took it. Also, we know from Ecclesiastes 10.1, the dead fly makes the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. The, a dead fly. A dead fly. One dead fly in the perfumer's ointment makes it give off a stench. How many dead flies do you want in your food? That's enough for you to say, okay, I'm not going to eat it. How many hairs from some person that you don't know do you want on your food? That's enough for you to say, I'm not going to eat it. How many cockroaches on your food that you won't eat it? One, right? Isn't that enough? Not 20, not 30, but one. One is enough to send it back and say, can I have my money back? 
that's the way that we have to be in our doctrine and theology as well, right? We don't want to ingest any of this stuff. And here, Jesus tells them, you have to beware of this. Beware, right? Isn't that what we say when there's danger? Imminent danger. Beware, this is dangerous. Well, this is eternally dangerous. This is an issue of eternal life and eternal death. So this is even more serious, right? If people see a sign on the fence that says, beware of dog, they know, don't go in there. Well, if you hear Jesus saying, beware of false teachers, then we should know to stay away from them. Stay away from them and want nothing to do with them because they will lead to hell, to hell. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. First Timothy 4 and verse 1. It says, but the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times that some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So here, the false teaching that is being promoted is the forbiddance of marriage and at the forbiddance of food, advocating abstaining from foods, certain foods. Right, So we're not talking about denial of the Trinity. We're not talking about denial of the person of Christ, his humanity or his divinity. Or his divinity. We're not talking about uh, justification by faith. We're not dealing with those things. We're talking about forbidding marriage. Now, if you ask people today, is forbidding marriage essential or non-essential? Is this an issue that makes someone a heretic? And that's, oh, no, 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 no. No, we can't say that on, on that issue. What about someone who advocates abstaining from food? Where they say, we shouldn't eat pork. We shouldn't eat pork. Well, I mean, that's a big deal to me. But no, is that, is that, but they believe the Trinity. They, they, on everything else, they, they believe the gospel. They preach the gospel. They believe all the other doctrines, but they just say that we shouldn't eat pork. Well, what is, what does the apostle Paul call these people? That they are deceitful spirits, and these are doctrines of demons. Can we believe doctrines of demons and go to heaven? We cannot believe doctrines of demons. And these are the hypocrisy of liars. He calls them liars. Hypocrites and liars who have a seared conscience. And this is issues of food. Of food. Forbidding things like this. Forbidding things. And marriage. Saying, oh, it's better to not get married. Then we can, we'll be married to Christ. And we'll give our life to Christ. And we'll be devoted to Christ. Right? And, and it'll be great. And, it'll, and to promote this type of lifestyle. And to say that it's better for people not to get married. Well, if you do that in the church, and you're encouraging and promoting celibacy, or people not getting married, and acting as if it's, it's more spiritual, then the young people are going to they're gonna follow that, because young people are naive and gullible. And they're going to want to please the, uh, the leaders and, and show that they're spiritual. And then they're going to say, okay, well, I'm not going to get married, and I'm going to pursue this life of celibacy. And I've seen this before. In uh, college ministries, th th these types of things were happening. Well, what ends up happening whenever that is being promoted in the church? Sin, fornication, fornication. Or if it gets even worse, pedophilia, right? Isn't that what happens in many Roman Catholic churches? Because they're forbidding marriage. Because what is the means God has given to protect men and women from burning with lust? Marriage, marriage. So you're denying them the means established by God to overcome this sin of lust. But you're saying, no, it's good. It's better not to do that. And then they burn with lust and they go to hell. And they go to hell. That's why it's a doctrine of a demon. Though it sounds very spiritual. But it's actually unspiritual. Because it's not based in the Bible. Right? It's not based in the Bible. Now, we're not talking about someone like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Who was given that gift... Uh, of being single for the purpose of ministry and was able to control, have self-control, but that's very uncommon. Yep. Commonly speaking, generally speaking, 
men and women need to be encouraged to get married. Young men and young women need to get married, have children, raise a family, and give the enemy no occasion to slander. So that's why false teaching is so dangerous, and we must be on guard against it. Okay, does anybody know what time it is? Okay, well, that's perfect. We will stop right there for tonight, and next week we'll pick up in verse 13. Which, man, I had, I had a... I was going to tell you all that I actually... I was going to convert to Roman Catholicism because I just read this passage about the Pope, and uh, it's, Ro- it's, it's Matthew chapter 16. So this is their passage that they use to, to support the Pope. Um, but it's, it's a feeble argument that they have. I was saying it uh, in joking. In jail, no doubt. doubt. So uh, anyway, so you'll have to wait. Actually, I've already given you the punchline, so sorry. I'll I'll probably make it again next week. But uh, anyway, so okay, so we'll stop there, and we'll pick up in 13 next week, and, um, and then we will just carry on from there.